Dr. Kristen DeMay, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. This is a great interview, Jason. And she wrote this book, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, which I have not been able to put down. Uh, I think every Christian, evangelical Christian, should read this book. Yeah. Because it's full of the kind of nuance and history that makes you realize how we can lose our moorings of the gospel that Jesus represented and create a gospel that has nothing to do with him. Yeah, she's a professor of history, gender studies at Calvin University. Her whole approach is historic in nature. She is looking at how we got to where we are now, mm -hmm. how evangelicalism has become anti-biblical. She's coming at this from a standpoint of transferring really allegiance to the kingdom to allegiance to a party. Yeah, that's it. An allegiance to a means of reaching a morality goal or a quote righteous endeavor yeah. through a system that God never intended it to be reached through. Yeah. It's very Machiavellian how our, our politics work. The end justifies the means. <laughs> um, Jesus doesn't act that way. Yeah. And and she has written a history and I, I would say it's a really kind history. She doesn't pull any punches. She names names. She talks about people and structures and organizations that have misused their power yeah. and appropriated their power in horrific ways that have hurt people and have created institutions that uh, their only goal is to hold on to power. Yeah. yeah. But I think she's also exposing something inside of our hearts. And as I read this, man, my heart just came alive in terms of, well, we can break free from this. What was the what was the statement? At the end of the book. She made at the yeah. end of the book. What was once done might also be undone. Yeah. yeah. I love that she went after the nature of power. I mean, she takes a historical approach and she's particularly looking at the history of evangelicalism in America. But we were able to talk about the impact that's had on us in our daily lives and how we do church. I us. came away informed, yeah. but also inspired that by living our individual lives differently and our community lives differently, we can make a difference. This is a, this could be stretching, mm -hmm. um, but that's a good thing. Yeah. Isn't it? I think so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what if we did a podcast that was relational in nature? Hmm. Uh, it might sound something like the. I'd be a part of that. I'd do that too. <laughs> this is a good one, guys. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this, and I think it'll be encouraging and empowering to all of you guys. This is Dr. Kristen Dumay. Yeah, yeah. So she wrote the book Jesus and John Wayne, and we are very, very excited to have you today. I got to tell you, this book is right up my alley. I have a degree in journalism and I love the history. I love the sourcing. I love the quotes. Um, you have outdone yourself with this book and it is really, really impressive. Thank you. Um, and my Thank wife you. loves it. She yes. is a huge fan as well. Uh, we, it's caused so much conversation in our home. I have a 23-year-old daughter, and we're just all over the map in, in my home. And yeah, so yeah. we have had amazing <laughs> conversations, which is another thing I love about this book is the level of nuance that you convey is just so powerful. I mean, normally you have like just a black and white kind of picture. But I'm telling you, you hit the nuance in this book that I think everyone is going to feel comfortable, not not comfortable. No one's going to feel comfortable reading this book, period. But <laughs> they're going to feel like they're not maybe being threatened on both sides. Everyone, I think, is welcome into the nuance yeah. of this book. And that is an impressive feat, uh, which I just want to compliment you for and say thank you. Yeah. I'm so glad that's the way you heard it. I'm, that's that's a huge compliment. So I'm, I'm really grateful that's the way the book came across. We're really excited to have you here. Honored that you would come on. We both have kids that are in their late teens mm -hmm. and uh, radical thinkers, mm -hmm. some over here, some over there. So big conversations. <laughs> and your book has, has been incredible in our house. Your work is, has brought enlightenment. Yeah to uh to these conversations so we're really glad you're here thank you why don't we start with a little um personal background if you don't mind tell us a little no. bit of your story family upbringing uh, those sort of things sure i grew up in a small town in iowa sioux center iowa and i uh, grew up in a pretty conservative uh christian uh, enclave 
um, primarily Dutch immigrant community. So um, my mom actually immigrated from the Netherlands when she was young and uh, lived in this little reformed subculture. So my dad is an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church. He was a theology professor at Dort University. That's where I went to college. So I really grew up in, in, in that very distinctive confessional religious space. I didn't grow up identifying as a white evangelical or as an evangelical. I grew up identifying as very specifically as a Dutch reformed Christian over yeah. against American evangelicalism, over against American Christianity. Um, and, you know, we were um, different. We were smarter <laughs> than <laughs> evangelicals. You know, so that was my, my self-identity. Right. Uh, it wasn't really until I got to graduate school that I, um, I went to graduate school to study religious and intellectual history, worked with George Marsden, the kind of guru of the history of American evangelicalism. Sure. And there I met real evangelicals. Like these guys were coming my classmates were coming from Wheaton College, from Moody Bible Institute, from Bob Jones University, right? Mm. And um, and so then I realized that um, they had a, a very different kind of background. They knew different people. Um, their stories were different. But the places where we intersected, really, where our experiences overlapped were um, popular culture. Um, so even though I grew up in this distinctive subculture, uh, there was one bookstore in my town and it was a Christian bookstore. Right. Right? I grew up only listening to CCM, to contemporary Christian music sure, sure. only. Just, just the Christian stuff. Oh, only. I mean, top 40 was sinful. Um, <laughs> right. I was supposed to only listen to the Christian music, but I, I was very sneaky. And oh, so, no. See, that was my brother. I was I was not. I was a real follower. So, I, I mean, I did. I did break that rule once and I bought a Tiffany cassette. That was like my one like super rebellious act. Oh. Um, otherwise, it was all Michael Card and of clay. Uh, so anyway, you are alone now. <laughs> totally. Oh, brings back memories yeah. and guilt. So much guilt. So, so much. anyway, yeah, that I think you can kind of see that in this book too, where I'm where I'm asking questions about what does it mean to be an evangelical? And mm. whereas a lot of historians had really privileged the theological definition. So if you if you proclaim certain beliefs, the and if you check off the theological boxes, then you're an evangelical. For me, I see evangelicalism as a cultural movement, as an identity. So did you grow up listening to Focus on the Family Radio? Did you grow up right. reading Josh Harris? Right? That kind of that's what it really means right. to be an evangelical. And so that's the history that I write. Yeah, and oh, how about family? Yes. Let's talk just a little more personal if we can. We want to we want to hear about your family. Okay, so uh, my family that I grew up in, I'm one of four uh, children. So um, second of four, I have an older brother, a younger brother, and then a younger sister. Uh, they're kind of all over the map, do all, all kinds of different things. Um, one of my brothers is a federal judge. One of my brothers is a vice president of really big corporations. I don't quite understand what they do, um, like global stuff. And then my sister is an accountant and uh, right now uh, a stay-at-home mom of two. So um, that's my my birth family. Um, and my um, my mom was a PE teacher. I always said my dad was a, a pastor or, or, or a, a theology professor, and then he preached on the side. Um, my mom was a PE teacher, my PE teacher at the local Christian school. Okay. And she passed away a couple years ago mm, um, while I was writing this book, actually. Mm. And um, and then my my family, then in, in terms of um, my husband is uh, working remotely just downstairs <laughs> um, and uh, he works in IT. And then I have three kids. I have a 14 year old boy and a 12 year old girl and on Saturday, I will have an eight-year-old girl. Wow. Uh, so th those are my kids. And uh, yeah, keeps things busy. But um, uh, that's, you know, we've been spending a lot of quality time together with the pandemic. And as of today, my, my, my kids were all in quarantine. They all had COVID the last um, three, four weeks. Oh, wow. So this is the first day they are all back at school, which is very exciting. I was watching one of your podcasts and uh, you talked about this 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 newer book, Jesus and John Wayne, almost as an obsession, as something you had to write. Yes, I'm a writer. I understand that very much. That if I'm writing something, it's it's a lot of work, yeah. a whole lot of work that goes into it, and so it has to be something that you're passionate about. That yeah. you very much think will impact and change people's lives. I would love to know what the why it was an obsession, what was burning mm -hmm. in you, and uh, and then also I, I would love to have you step that into the definition today of 
evangelicalism mm-hmm. and 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 how you were defining it and I imagine those are all tied together. Yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, the the writing of this book was really intense. The um I first started this research more than 15 years ago actually. So I um uh, was introduced to this vast literature on Christian manhood back in around 2005, 2006 by my students. I teach at Calvin University, right? A Christian students, evangelical students come my way in my classes. And they were the ones who, who first tipped me off to uh, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And I was really interested in that book and um, both how Eldridge defined Christian masculinity as you know, essentially militaristic, uh, a God is a warrior God and men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight and how he wasn't really drawing on the scriptures much at all to, um, uh, to present this vision of Christian masculinity. It was, it was really influenced by popular culture, by Hollywood movies and, and so on. And I was intrigued at the time um, how uh, this was in 2005 or six when I came across this initially. And, and at that time, it was the early years of the Iraq war. And we had all this survey data coming in showing how white evangelicals were far more likely than other Americans to support that war, to support preemptive war in general, condone the use of torture and so on. And so I really was curious what a militant conception of masculinity might have to do with this very aggressive foreign policy. Um, So that was a long time ago. And I spent a year and a half researching this topic. And then I set it aside. Um, I did for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, it was incredibly disturbing stuff I was uncovering, like deeply misogynistic. Um, This Mm -hmm. is the Mark Driscoll era. Um, I found it revolting. I wasn't sure I wanted to live with this material for the time it would take to write the book. And I also wasn't sure like, if this was mainstream because it felt so fringe. And so I thought, you know, should I really be focusing all my attention on this if it's really a fringe movement? Uh, and is that good for American Christianity, frankly? Right. I'm a Christian myself. Right. So I just set it aside and thought, I'll, I'll circle back maybe someday. Um, and that day came in the fall of 2016. Uh, it was in the days after the Access Hollywood tapes uh, released. Okay. And um, because I hadn't stopped paying attention and I saw how one after another of the men who had been promoting this militant masculinity uh, became embroiled in scandal, abuse of power, sexual abuse. Um, and so in the days after Access Hollywood tape, this is when you know, we, we had then candidate Donald Trump on camera admitting to assaulting women. Um, and we saw his white evangelical supporters, uh, some very small number, temporarily waver and then all come back and support him within the week. And and it struck me all of a sudden, like we've seen this before. I've seen this before time and again, evangelicals supporting abusive leaders. And so it kind of clicked for me at that point. And, you know, four weeks later, we had the election we saw this um, incredible support for Trump from white evangelicals. And a lot of people in the media were saying, how could evangelicals betray their values? And I knew that wasn't true. Uh, that, that wasn't what we were looking at. We had to have a better understanding of what those values actually were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when I decided I need to write this book. Um, and and so I, <laughs> I wrote the proposal uh, I, well, first I, I did several more months of research and then pitched the book and then you have a deadline, right? Yes. <laughs> and I had a deadline that was a really ambitious deadline because we knew the book had to be out well in advance of the 2020 election. Okay. And so, um, I did it. I, I wrote the first draft in, um, in less than a year. I wrote it very quickly because, um, it's easier to write, um, Right, right. Uh, I wrote it very long, I should say. I, I, okay. I wasn't really looking at word count. It's, it's a lot easier uh-huh. to write fast and long than sure, to try sure, to edit sure. as you go. Yeah. So then I ended up putting all the pieces together at one point when I was just months away from my deadline. And I saw that word count. I was 60,000 words over my word count. <laughs> yeah. So that's when I really panicked. I mean, I thought I had been working hard before then, but when I saw that, I was like, I'm in such big trouble, but I signed this contract and what's going to happen. So I have to cut 60,000 words from this, this manuscript. Four yeah. months. <laughs> I, I cut, I, I did nothing but cut, but that was when it became an obsession. Yes. And I thought, you know, I got myself into this. There's only yeah. one way out. I have to write myself out of this yeah. problem. 
And so I did, I submitted it to my publisher, um, my editor. And at that point I still had eight months to go to do the edits, um, which seemed intense, but I could do it. And, um, he got it, read it and said, okay, I'm going to ask you something. We want to move your deadline up by four months. (laughs) And that's when things got incredibly intense that summer. I, I agreed. Um, they knew it needed more time to, to, to be out before the election and, um, yeah, that's when I ended up putting in um, a stretch of 18 hour days. I yeah. sent my kids away. Yeah. And um, but honestly, I never you know, I never had writer's block. I never had a question of what needed to, what I needed to write. Yeah. I knew um, I knew what needed to go into this book. I had three amazing research assistants, students at Calvin that helped. And so it was it was it felt cathartic to write, honestly. And I wrote this during you know the last four years, really. Um, intensely during an 18 month stretch. And so while I was seeing all of this um, kind of play out in, in, in terms of evangelicals and the Trump administration and so on, I was sitting in, you know, on top of all this information, just thinking, um, I can explain this. I, I, you know, this, this all makes sense mm, right. within this narrative. And so it, it didn't really feel like a chore. Kristen. Um, and once again, thank you for writing this book. It could not be more timely and I think you did a phenomenal job of cutting those 60,000 words. And now I want to hear those 60,000 words uh, on the backside after. (laughs) I just had people asking for them last night. It's like somebody literally volunteered. He's like, give them to me. I'll turn them into blog posts. Uh, Yeah, there's there's some some interesting stuff there. What comes across crystal clear, though, is that uh, this is something that is a passion of yours in terms of not just exposing for the sake of exposing, but almost explaining. And that's what I mean about the nuance. It's like, it's so rich in its historical explanation um, that, I mean, you know, the Bible tells us clearly that a wise person receives correction. I believe wise people who read this book will have their thinking corrected in terms of the, I believe the goals that you have in mind for the outcome. Um, And we want to ask you about that in just a second, but um one thing, me personally, as just as far as my response to this book, is it it's a it absolutely put words to things that I've known and seen, but just didn't have language for it. You give language to it, and it's such a great, great book. I think for anybody on any side to read. I mean, as a pastor, and look, I'm a reluctant pastor. Um, <laughs> I, I love what I do but um, never thought this is what I would be doing. Um, I've taken a stance, a political stance from the very beginning to not be affiliated with any party whatsoever, Mm -hmm. registered, unaffiliated, independent, uh, since I've been pastoring for 18 years now. Um, I tell people, okay, I was born in the Johnson administration. And so uh, from Johnson to Biden, all of these people have been my president None of them have been my savior or my hope. Yes. And I think I think one of the things that we have found that you you bring out and bring crystal clear with evangelical culture is that it has it has strayed from its moorings of uh, maybe a biblical context more into a cultural context. And the feeling I get is that you're you're looking for your hope in a political solution. So for instance, you're either like super thrilled by who gets voted in or you're super disappointed by who gets Somehow voted in. your faith even. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's almost that like inordinate hope. It, it betrays your inordinate hope by either how crazy excited you are or how super despondent you are based yeah. on this political thing. When we're supposed to be people who live within this kingdom and within this yeah. culture that kind of sits above it and has this law of love yes. at its basis. And so um, I want to, I, I want to hear a little more about maybe that the outcomes of your, what you're hoping to see achieved by, by this book. And I'm, I'm recommending everybody go buy this book and read it. It really is a phenomenal book. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah. So my purpose for this book, I think, kind of shifted over time because I think early on, you know, I I was disturbed by, you know, some of the patterns I was seeing in um, conservative evangelicalism, particularly around, again, this kind of embrace of abusive leaders. Um, 
I was disturbed by um, the relationship between Christianity and power, um, how how power was perceived and yeah. and wielded. Yeah. Um, and and it it seemed to me not aligned with my understanding of biblical Christianity. And so I think early on, I I, I had the sense that um, maybe I can change things. Right? I'm going to write a book, and I and I will I will show people <laughs> what's right. And then uh, a few months into research, uh, I. I abandoned that hope because I became convinced that what I was uncovering was just so deeply embedded within this longer history. And I saw how power was was structured and wielded. And I thought, oh, this is not going to change. <laughs> A book is not going to change anything, um, which was fine. I kind of just settled into that and thought my job as a historian anyway is just to tell the truth. Right. It really is just to testify. And that's what I wanted to do in this book. I wanted to tell the truth as as accurately and powerfully as possible. Um, but there is a, a bit of a critical framing here. And I think that the subtitle uh, makes that clear. Um, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Now, the corrupted a faith is not a historical claim. And I want to be really upfront about that, mm -hmm. right? In terms of history, like how do you corrupt a faith? A, a faith is, you know, whatever, how it manifests in that moment in time. So there's a religious claim. Um, they, I was actually surprised my my publisher let me go with that because you know, it's right. kind of secular publisher, secular audience um, in mind. Um, but they understood what I was doing in that in that space and in the framing of this book. I really am speaking to evangelicals on their own terms, mm -hmm. right? Bible believing evangelicals. And one of the things that um, I think history can do so powerfully is to demonstrate how things that seem to be theological, right? Beliefs, convictions that seem to be God ordained, biblical are in fact deeply formed by cultural allegiances, right? By historical factors. And so in this book, the Cold War is really important. The Vietnam War, the anti-war mm -hmm. movement, um, civil rights, resistance to civil rights, feminism and resistance to feminism, like all of these things really do come to bear on which beliefs evangelicals cling to, define as orthodox, which they reject. And so um, I think kind of poignant moments in this book are spaces where I show that these you know, self-proclaimed Bible-believing Christians yeah. are sometimes very comfortable dismissing passages mm -hmm. from the scriptures, you know, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, no, 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 that doesn't apply in this situation. Right. Love your neighbor as yourself, but not, no, 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 the threat is too great. We need to be aggressive. We need to, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things are defined as feminine, not appropriate for mm -hmm. strong Christian men, right? These are the things. So there is a theological critique that is um, kind of underlying this book, but it doesn't, the book doesn't depend on it, right? It's, it's mostly just the point is to show this is true for all of us, all of us, um, you know, as human beings, we are always historically and culturally embedded. This is the way that, that, that um, we are created. And so we should have some humility in terms yeah. of how we understand our faith, our convictions, and we should always be critically testing our current convictions, mm -hmm. understanding of truth against the scriptures and bringing in other voices, particularly other believers who may have very different experiences from ours, yeah. nationally, racially, ethnically, you know, gender, gender. Yes. And, and come together as a community and test ourselves. Right. And, and so that's really, I think, what what one of the, the projects of this book is. It's mostly just a history, um, but I think it's also a history that I think particularly serves evangelicals who have largely ignored their own history or have, have um, kind of written their own versions of history that fail to grapple with, I think, some of the darker sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been paying close attention for this podcast. I've been listening to other podcasts and I heard you say, and, and I don't remember which one, but you referenced uh, the publisher coming back to you and asking for some some positive <laughs> yes. uh, ending to this. Is that right? Like some hope. Some, Please, give, us give us some hope. hope. <laughs> give us, 
Oh, that's yeah. So, you know, I said that this was really intense. They moved it up the, you know, the the final submission by four months, which when you're looking at eight months, like that's that's yeah. stressful, as you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so it was at the very end of that um, process. And we thought, you know, OK, we're good here. Right. We're good. Um, you know, right, final right. tweaks. He uh, he was getting taking the weekend off and, uh, you know, he's like, oh, you know, like one more thing. This is really depressing. Chris. Like, yeah. And it's like, yeah. no, like you cannot leave your readers in this place. Yeah. You just can't do this to your readers. That's a good editor. Uh, right. I just I never really. Yes. Did not. That's that wasn't in, in you know, again, I was trying to tell the truth. Um, and that's that's all. Sure. Um, and so I really thought about it and I thought, no, you're right. It is really depressing. But I I don't I don't have anything else to say. This is it. This is this is where I end up, too. And I agree. It's not great. Yeah, yeah. I'm not very hopeful. And he said, OK, I respect that. And then um, a couple of days later, another email, like Kristen, just give us something. Anything. <laughs> and so that's when I, I took another look. OK, right now I really have to do this. So uh, that's when I gave him the last sentence of the book. Uh, what was once done might also be undone. And honestly, yeah. I felt so foolish. I felt like yeah. so sheepish, like this is not enough. And he's like, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. But um, but here's the truth, right? I, I didn't think a book could could change something at all yeah but i've seen that it can yeah it can yeah i've seen that knowing this history and and it, and it really is the power of history right because again you can have theological debates and those have been going on for centuries and everybody is kind of you know they have their view they know the counter arguments and they're not going to budge um or at least oftentimes today it seems um but history just shows how those deeply held beliefs came to be. Sure. Mm -hmm. And once you see that, yeah. then you can ask, you know, oh, wait a minute, right? Things didn't used to look this way. Yeah. Not all conservative Protestants were Christian nationalists. Yeah. Um, you know, evangelicals used to have very different ideas of what it meant to be a Christian man, you know, championing self-restraint, not aggression. Yeah. Like, as soon as you have those pieces in place, you can say, well, well, then how did things get to where they are now? Sure. And is this where we want things to be? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so once you see how things were made, you can decide if you want to unmake them. And it's not going to be easy at all, um, but it is possible. And I've seen that happen, certainly on an individual yeah, level. Yeah. I've, I've heard from right now, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of readers, um, probably well over a thousand by now. Every day I get messages, yeah. just heartfelt testimonies saying, this is the story of my life. Yeah. And now I can see and here's what I'm going to and I was complicit and here's how and here's what I'm going to do differently. And it's really amazing. What has been done can be undone. Mm -hmm. That, that is, is so good. I I, um, I I love that it was not enough when you wrote it. You were like, oh, my gosh, no, this is. Uh, and yet it is the truth. It is true. And, and it's it's an awakening. Well, people. one thing, Kristen, the terminology she uses is a Bible believing. Sure. Evangelical yeah. culture. Uh, isn't it interesting that we can be Bible believing and yet not be Jesus following? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, that's, I think, the divide that you bring crystal clear in this book. Sorry, Jason, I no, totally I, cut you off. You know, if you want to shine a light on, on the darkness, you have to have a light. And boy, when you can find one that is Jesus on a cross, yeah. Yeah. sacrificial love, reconciling the world, not holding, yeah, co-suffering, yes. this this restorative perspective of, of who he is, mm -hmm. you've got something now that, that can really help. Yes. The book that I wrote was, was a theological book. It was about the nature of God and his sovereignty. Um, but it was addressing the same things that, that you were addressing, just as we could talk about uh, the culture within American and American politics. You can talk about the culture within churches. Yes. Um, and, and you can talk about the abuses that take place within churches. Yes. And when I think about the church, when I think about America, we think about power as the ability to control. Yes. So the, the thing I was pushing at was that, that we've painted God as a God that is in control as though, instead of a God that is sacrificial love. Right. Absolutely. And, and when you have a God that is sacrificial love, he redefines what power is. Mm -hmm. Somehow Jesus believed that going to a cross was the most powerful thing that a leader could do. Yes. He thought that that was the answer. There's something you said that I thought was good. You talked about the connection between power and privilege. Mm-hmm. And I would look at Jesus and say, Jesus was incredibly privileged, but not the way that we have defined it. Yeah. His, his privilege had something that was uniquely connected to his relationship with his father. Yeah. And, uh, but I would love to have you speak to power and privilege. Yeah. You know, 
So I'm not a theologian. I'm just a Plato historian, but I have, um, you know, as a Christian, this, this, this really does seem the crux of things. Um, so what, what does power look like in, in terms of the Christian faith? And one thing that's super clear in the new Testament is that Jesus always messes with everybody's expectations, right? Yeah. He never yeah. fulfills the expectations, always undermines like, no, 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 that's not what we're going for here. You know, sit at my right hand, you know, right, the, right. Um, the triumphal entry that like over and over again, it's just, um, you know, the last shall be first and, yeah. and just completely messes with uh, human understandings of, of power. Yeah. And, um, and, and, it is so tempting, right? Power is a temptation and Christians in particular can are, are so adept at justifying their own power, their own grasp for power, because we're always going to do amazing, righteous things sure. with it. Yeah. Um, but that in and of itself undermines the, you know, what I think is so revolutionary about Christianity, so revolutionary about Christ, about the gospel message that Jesus divested himself of power, right? Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And yet, yeah. Yeah. when we look at certainly American evangelicalism over the last half century and more, there is a very different understanding of power at its heart. It is the more power, the better, the more worldly power, the more political power, the more military power so that we can protect our truth, Mm -hmm. God's truth, our truth. It's the same, right? But but it's not that God's truth defines ours, ours, we we say, and God is on our side. And, And so you can just see how this ends up distorting, corrupting the faith Mm -hmm. itself, because you can see how, um, you know, Jesus, the Jesus of the gospels gets redefined into a a warrior Christ who, you know, has tattoos down his leg and is riding a horse and charging into battle, wielding a bloody sword to slay all his enemies. And of course, his enemies are are your enemies and you have a lot of enemies. And, um, and this really ultimately does uh, offer a, a corrupted version of Christianity. Um, I mean, what else? The other thing I, I noticed when I, I looked at this research was just how important the concept of authority was. Right. Authority popped up over and over again, you know, yeah. on advice to Christian parents, mm-hmm. how to be a Christian wife, how to be a Christian leader, all of yeah, this. And a twisted perspective on it. Yes. So, you know, who has authority? And it's always this hierarchical chain of command. Yeah. And deference to authority was inculcated, coerced, taught, right? Yeah. Um, in all sorts of literature. And I see the effects of that. I see the fruit of it. And you talk about church cultures mm-hmm. and the the pressure to show deference yeah. to the authorities over you. Yeah. So if you're a woman to your husband, if you're a church member to your pastor, right. if you're a less important pastor than to the more important pastor yeah. and all the way up. Yeah. And, um, and that deference to authority means not speaking truth, keeping your mouth shut, right. not exposing wrongs. And that, uh, you know, the, the whole last chapter of, of this book is about abusive cultures in evangelical organizations. And I mean, the, the acts of perpetrators are horrific, yeah. but just as horrific are the acts of the community to cover up, to condone, mm-hmm. to blame the victims and always deference to authority and, um, you know, to per, quote unquote, protect the mission of the church, the organization. Right. Yeah. And cumulatively, well, individually and cumulatively, you see just how much harm that impulse has done. It's devastating. So it is a misplaced authority. I love that God identifies himself as love personified. And and therefore, if we're going to look at that as ultimate authority and ultimate power, love never seeks to control. (laughs) Exactly. And so love is not controlling. Right. And so um, if we're going to truly embrace um, the, the Jesus, the God that Jesus revealed and and Jason and I are both like, this is our, our number one pursuit is, you know, God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the mirror image of the father. If you've seen him, you've seen the father. He came to truly show us what it was like to be human and to understand who the father was and the father was love and is love. 
And so um, a authoritative or power structure void of love is always going to be perverted into control, manipulation, fear. Yes. Uh, we've seen it time and time yeah. and time again of yeah. what this is what we're capable of. And, and the, the danger is we assign it to God's character, something that he literally has nothing to do it's with. Counter to yeah. who he is. Yeah. And, uh, and Jesus was great at uh, not only exposing that, but then using that love authority to go to the cross and show us what it's like to live sacrificially. Yeah. I, I use the example of Peter, and, and I, I imagine that uh, this is exactly what you're talking about. Peter had a perspective of what it, on earth as it is in heaven would look like. Yes. And he got part of it right. He thought part of it was, I have to be willing to, to lay my life down. Mm -hmm. But then he also thought, I also have to, I have to be willing to die for Jesus. And I also have to be willing to kill for Jesus. <laughs> Uh, and so he goes into a garden and swings a sword on behalf of his devotion to his ideology. Yes. Right. And Jesus yep. rebukes him. Exactly. He says, put the sword away. You know, not, and, and essentially the same thing he said to the disciples who wanted to call yes. fire. Down. He says, you know, not what spirit you're of. It's counter yeah. to, to my nature. I'm on my yep. way to show you what authority looks like. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes. I'm on my way to a cross to lay my life down. And your love is Hey guys, I'm interrupting this podcast for just a minute so I can invite you to partner with us by giving to A Family Story. A Family Story is a 501, a nonprofit, and it's our ministry. And it's what allows for me to produce this podcast and other regular content. We've been living this faith journey for a long time, but 2014 was when we officially stepped away from the traditional pastoring approach to full-time ministry. It's been fun. This journey has been wild. And this last year was no less faith-inducing with COVID affecting travel and speaking. And it's been good, because hey, we started a podcast. Our passion is to create content catalytic for an encounter with the always good, transforming, reconciling love of our Heavenly Father. And so our heart through this ministry has always been that through speaking, writing, film, and music, we're relentlessly sharing the goodness of our Father, the good news. Your giving goes directly to support this podcast, as well as written content, discipleship content, teaching small group messages, articles that we release weekly, and also the book I'm writing. I'm excited about what I'm chasing down right now. We appreciate all the support, whether it's sharing, writing a review, following us, signing up for our email list, or financially. We just love being on the journey with you. If you want to give to A Family Story, you can go to afamilystory.org afamilystory.org and click on the give button. All right, thanks guys. Let's get back to the podcast. Because of how I'm wired, politics, I approach politics like my four-year-old approached peas. <laughs> he hated peas. You know, it, I have to eat them. You know, I'm gagging, uh -huh. you know, the juice is slipping down my, my chin, you know, <laughs> that's how I feel about politics because it's just such a messy dualistic yes. for or against, yeah. but I really hate when the church yes. part, begins to participate with its dualistic thinking. Yes. And I would love for you to, to help us understand how evangelicalism has stepped so far away from, from this yeah. That is the gospel truth. That is Jesus. That is sacrificial love. Yeah. I mean, you, you can read the quote. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let me. I'll, let me go ahead and read it real quick. I've got it right here, um, and it's in the. It's in your conclusion at the end, um, Kristen. You said, despite evangelicals' frequent claims that the Bible is the source of their social and political commitments, evangelicalism must be seen as a cultural and political movement rather than a community defined chiefly by its theology. One more sentence. Evangelical views on any given issue are facets of this larger cultural identity and no number of Bible verses yeah. will dislodge the greater truths at the heart of this. Yeah. It's almost like, and I would take that a step further and say the character and nature of Jesus. Because one thing that Jason and I are chasing after is we, we read our Bibles differently because of the filter of Jesus that we're reading it right. through. Yes. Now we're letting yes. him be our uh, rabbi, yeah. our teacher in the process of even reading scripture. So we're not trying to yes. 
uh, assign a political context to it. And then I, I think what you're saying in that quote, I'll let you speak for yourself. What I got from it was we started out aligning ourselves with these scriptures, but then we thought that the better power way would be through politics and culture. And so we ditched that where we use that as a segue because you can make scripture say pretty much anything you want. Right. There's a lot to work with there. We ditched that. Yeah. And we went with this as our means of achieving authority and power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that no number of Bible verses sentence uh, was really inspired by conversations I had with a lot of evangelical activists who are working uh, with, with refugees and on immigration reform and just, you know, mm-hmm. so much frustration because there, there is, you know, no um, uh, shortage of Bible passages uh, telling followers of Christ to welcome the stranger at all. You know, like that's a pretty clear theme through all of scripture. And yet that just right. doesn't get them anywhere. Um, And, and so, yeah, politics, how does politics work? And this gets back to that question of power, really, you know, of, of um, when evangelicals decided to advance their purportedly religious aims that they needed to do so through politics. And, Mm -hmm. um, and yes, politics is often a zero sum game. It's this us versus them, um, you know, kind of the rules and compromise. um, I mean, Lately, it's not really uh, you aren't finding a middle ground, but it does, um, you know, it's kind of a battle. And now I'm reformed enough to say that, you know, uh, that Christians should be involved in politics if we live in, you know, um, kind of a democratic country and and that there are ways to do that. But Christians ought to be troublemakers within their parties. Love that. That's really the reputation that we should have. That's good. We should be the the voices of conscience all the time. We should be the ones who are not dependable party line voters. We should be the ones that say, great on this line. Great, great. You know what? No, this is not okay. And we're going to push you on this. And so Christians should be uniting across Mm -hmm. um, party differences and should be talking across um, differences on the issues, right? Because mm-hmm. because it's we know that Christians are going to have different views on what the best policy is in any yeah. given um, uh, situation. That's uh, you know, the world is messy. Um, fixing this messy world is messy, and yeah. so that's all okay, right? This should not again be a zero sum game. But Christians absolutely should be the 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 strange ones in every political party that they find themselves the ones who are working across the aisle the ones who refuse to demonize their opponents yeah. the ones who who don't show deference to their party officials right yeah. to their the, the people up their party uh, chain of command mm-hmm. um yeah. a disruptive force and that is exactly what most christians are not right now yeah. in um in this country. And, and and I think, Kristen, what that speaks to uh, and what I take away from that is really our allegiance is to another kingdom. Our allegiance is to, yeah, exactly. first and foremost, um, this kingdom that sits, sits up here. It sits above politics. It sits above right and left. And that's something I've been yeah. really preaching since the 2016 election and before that was please get off the right-left spectrum. And don't align yourselves exclusively with that because the only room there is to move at each other yes. as opposed to get up on this spectrum of, of the kingdom where love is the law and where you can drop down anywhere on that line of political spectrum and love people. And I think that that really is what I'm finding more and more is that, uh, and hopefully I believe your book will push people toward this conclusion. I mean, it, it helps me, it helps reinforce my already my biases that we should let love be the preeminent thing amongst us, but love will speak the truth. Love will engage people in a way that is in their best interest. And uh, I love what you're saying about Christians should be the disruptive ones in any engage. I think it's Gabe Lyons who says we should both repulse, be repulsive and engaging at the same time that we, we would repulse the culture because of the, the stand of, uh, not just morality, but with true character that we're wanting to represent. But then love should also engage people and yeah. allow them to be drawn into it. I mean, that's a both and kind of situation that we're we're uh, walking on. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the folks that that are 
traveling with us on this podcast or uh, would use the terminology of, uh, and we use it occasionally to deconstructing yeah. uh, and then reconstructing. I, I'm more fascinated. I like deconstructing, but I'm very, way more excited about the reconstructing mm-hmm. aspects of our faith. Um, but I think a whole lot of the the movement that is taking place right now, this deconstructing movement that is taking place within the, the church. And I'll say this on a side, I didn't grow up evangelical. I am... Um, but I, I know that because of how much it's baked into our culture, uh, just like you, it's in our songs, it's in it's in um, a whole lot of the content of what we read. Uh, and so it's certainly played roles in my life. And, and I've, I've had to continue to find places of, um, or continue to repent, continue mm-hmm. to, um, to discover uh, empathy and, and compassion mm-hmm. and, and, um, I think that's really important that you're doing that in community. But I, I think that the great deconstructing thing that's happening right now is is a response yeah. to a lot yeah. of what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of the dissatisfaction with an, a control based yeah. power structure yeah. that is blind to privilege, blind to um, it's a hierarchy. Yeah. It's a hierarchy. Yeah, it's very hierarchical. Blind to economic disparities. Mm. Um, blind to to the ideology that is nationalism. Yeah. And uh, I would love for you to talk about. Um, I've heard you speak a little bit about deconstructing and and the cultural yeah. baggage that has affected yeah. our faith. Yeah. Um, so this this deconstruction. I mean, it it is it is happening across evangelicalism and. And I was just talking with a journalist about this um, this past week, actually. And and so she is kind of self-identified coastal elite. You know, they don't do religion much out there in, uh, in, in her, uh, uh, at least uh, on her beat. And, and so she said, you know, I have this theory that, you know, we hear a lot about deconstruction right now. It's happening in white evangelicalism. And people out by me are saying, ah, they're all walking away from the faith, you know, kind of like good riddance to religion. She's like... That's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing yeah. people holding more firmly to their faith, rediscovering, yeah. refreshing their faith. So I'm like, yes. Yeah, so let's keep talking, right? That's, that's, that's the kind it. of that's exactly what I see. Which isn't to say that all aren't right. Some say they've been through so much, yeah. they've seen so much, they've yeah. experienced so much. Like they they need to walk away. And and there are some. So I don't want to speak for all. You know, ex evangelicals. All some are very clearly walking away from the Christian faith in its entirety. Sure. But many many are deconstructing these cultural layers Mm -hmm. that have for so long been packaged and sold as Christianity. Yeah, right. As Orthodox Christianity, take it or leave it kind of thing. And and, and it never fit right with them, right? Mm -hmm. These ideals of masculinity or femininity or this, this vision of power, or, you know, it could be papered over maybe for a time if you were in a position of privilege, right? You you could paper over some of the, the harsher effects of this ideology, maybe with lots of really lovely language. But at a certain point, and often for, for 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 many, it was somewhere along the line in the last four four and a half years, that that um, uh, kind of got um, kind of ripped away, and and now we have to see wait what is really happening here? Yeah. Where is God's love yeah. mm-hmm. um, in this you know set of allegiances in this set, uh, you know public behavior? And, um, and, and in this interpersonal, you know, relationship too, there, there's been a lot of fracturing within evangelical communities, within families. And so I think that's the deconstruction that's taking place. It's not for many evangelicals in any way abandoning their faith. It's actually a very exciting time where they are reclaiming their faith. They are digging back into the scriptures. They are able to see now for the first time just how much of this was was cultural packaging. And much of that cultural packaging actually subverts the core gospel yeah. message. And so like we Absolutely. need to get rid of that to rediscover what's really at the heart of the gospel. And honestly, that's a really exciting time. So, you know, a lot of people are, are looking from the outside saying, you yeah, know, this is a, a, a dumpster fire in white evangelicalism. <laughs> I mean, spiritually, you could also say it, it's a very healthy conflagration because uh, you know this needed to happen this absolutely needed to happen in order for a more authentic and more faithful christianity to emerge there's the hope right there yeah 
Yeah. She well, just nailed well, the well, entire well, hope of she this just said, book. <laughs> what once was done can be undone. <laughs> I love she, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is so and, it, good. And, I, and I agree with you. I see that happening. I, do I, re- too. I really do. That's that's what we're so excited about. Um, you yeah. could look at it and go, Oh, this is this is unnerving, this is scary. And 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 my core foundational belief about the nature of God is that he is love, and love never leaves us, never forsakes us, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Nothing separates us from the love of God. Mm-hmm. So even those that are stepping away from their faith, if you will say that, uh, yeah. they're, they're really stepping away from their fractured understandings and broken, uh, broken mm-hmm. experiences. And uh, I'm convinced that uh, it's a good thing. Uh, yeah, because uh, yeah. there's there's freedom on the other side of this, and I'm I'm actually quite yes. hopeful for what the church looks like in the coming days, yeah. and then the impact that 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 might have on a nation. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, call me a call me an optimist. You are, you are totally an optimist. <laughs> so am I. That's why we that's why we do this podcast together. That's right. <laughs> um, Kristen, we really really appreciate you taking the time, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into some. Uh, Unless there's something else that you just wanted to like, yeah, is throw in there that that we've mm-hmm. missed or something that you want to just what's add. burning on your heart? What's here? a passion in yeah. your I'll heart? Just, right well, I'll just I'll just do a quick follow up to that. You know, not oh shoot, we we ended on such a nice um, note of hope, <laughs> and here I'm going to bring okay. something out again <laughs> because that's I'm a historian. Right. It's what we do, um, and I don't my editor here to tell you to just stop. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I absolutely I'm I'm so inspired. It, it does give me so much hope what I see happening on an individual level yeah. across. American mm-hmm. evangelicalism right now, where I am much less optimistic is what I see happening and not happening on an institutional level. Sure, yeah. Right, It's one thing to have this kind of personal reckoning and to, to acknowledge your complicity and to deconstruct and to you know reach for a different understanding of the faith. It's a very different thing for an institution yeah. or an organization yeah. to acknowledge its complicity, to give up the power it has accrued, to risk mm. alienating powerful donors and constituents. And so I am seeing right now so many individuals acting out of their convictions in evangelical spaces. And I'm seeing lots of really difficult situations where pastors are being fired, where school teachers are being fired, where people are being edged out. And by and large, the institutions remain unchanged or even reinforced in the status quo. Mm. Uh, you know, so somebody like Beth Moore is a prominent national example where she um, worked to change within the SBC for years yeah. and finally said, enough, yeah. right? I'm walking away. This is not my home anymore. Yeah. So the SBC stays as it is. Russell Moore yesterday announced that he's leaving his leadership role there and joining Christianity Today. And so there too, you see the voices of dissent uh, eventually leaving. And the, I mean, social scientists can demonstrate that that actually leaves the institutions more radicalized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that is also a dynamic that we see. So I'm very hopeful on an individual basis. I'm hopeful for the church because this is a, this is a healthy process. Yeah. Um, in terms of hopeful, about you know American evangelicalism writ large, when we think of institutions and organizations, or when we think about the fate of this country, um, then I'm a little bit more chastened. Sure. Um, so I will say that, sure. but you know God can do um, amazing things. So and I understand. I mean, it's a dumpster fire. You just re- used that re- yeah. reference. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can look at uh, what's going on in our nation, and we're more divided in, in many ways. Uh, than, than in my lifetime. And yeah. I, I don't know where this nation goes. Uh, but as, as Derek said, um, I'm a part of a different family. I'm a part mm-hmm. of something that uh, that I'm convinced is ultimately sacrificial in nature. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess what I'll say is I have all my eggs in this basket that Jesus was convinced that laying his life down yeah. uh, would change the world. And I, and mm-hmm. uh, and that twelve guys, twelve fellows, and actually it wasn't twelve guys. We we spent a lot of time on them, but it was it was w- women and men. But he, a very I mean, small group. Come on now, Jesus <laughs> first commissioned, ordained, sent a woman to be the first to preach the resurrection, and he was convinced that this small group, this mm-hmm. love that that he had displayed on the cross, was more powerful than the the broken institutions of of the day or the future. Yeah, I guess that's. That's the place where, in the midst of all of this mess, that's that's the place where I find my hope. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and I would say to that for, for white evangelicals or ex-evangelicals who find that their faith is in a, a crisis place right now, right? that they have to reckon with what what was that that I believe that I participated in that I was complicit in for 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, and it can be really unsettling um, to them. I, I, I would say, you know, remember that. Uh, the fate of Christianity does not rest on white evangelicalism. It never has. That's good. Um, that's a myth that white evangelicals have been telling themselves for a long time. That's right. Um, that Christianity has been flourishing outside of white American evangelical spaces this whole time. Yeah, that's good. And you can just go there, right? You don't necessarily have to fix white evangelicalism. I mean, if you want to learn resilience, if you want to learn faithfulness in the face of um, pretty much, you know, like constant uh, loss, defeat. A look at the Black prophetic tradition of American yeah, Christianity. Yeah. Incredible resources, incredible witness, and an incredible community, beloved community, um, and incredible people. And so, you know, like you can, you this is not all on you. Yeah. You don't have to fix things, and maybe it's not yours to fix, but you don't have to worry about about Christianity. You don't have to worry about God. Um, my favorite quote in the book is actually um, towards the end. It's Rachel Den Hollanders, where she's mm. she's talking about um, the, the tendencies of evangelicals to cover up um, abuse, to cover up um, um, you know, the, the darker side of what's going on in order to protect the witness of the church. Yeah, yeah. And she has this amazing quote where she says, Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Jesus <laughs> only so asks for your obedience. Yeah. Cool. And what that looks like is telling the truth and pursuing justice. That's it. That's good. Right. And I love that. Yeah. So that's that's really the moral center of this book. I would say and that that comes across crystal clear. Yeah. And I would even go further. The church isn't determined on whether or not America is America as we know it. <laughs> uh, that, that Jesus didn't need America for the gospel to be established in the hearts of and nor, minds. Nor of, is he in the throne room, like twiddling his yeah. thumbs, pacing around, worried. Yeah. Yes. I think he's pretty confident that That's he right. said, I'll build my church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. <laughs> Um, we want to ask you about tacos because that's part of this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But before we do, I'm just going to give a little teaser to our audience. Um, chapter 14 of your book is titled Spiritual Badasses. And I'm just going to leave that right there because <laughs> that chapter alone is worth the price of this book. So thank you for writing Chapter 14, Spiritual Badasses. You are welcome. We'll just we'll leave it right there. Jason, you want to ask about tacos? <laughs> <laughs> this is Rethinking God with Tacos. We tried eating tacos when we first did it, but I was tired of editing out all the smacking. So <laughs> yeah. now we just talk about them. Not a good sound. <laughs> Uh, you got kids, so you've got to do tacos. We do tacos uh, at least once a week. In fact, I just took meat out of the freezer, so that's on the menu tonight. Yeah. My my seven year old's favorite meal. Um, there you go. So yes, we do tacos very regularly here. Okay, so we need a little more in depth. Now you are a historian; you know how to detail these things. Give us your perfect taco. Oh, see, see, this is where. Um, so the tacos that my seven year old insists on are very Midwestern American versions of tacos. So we're talking flour tortilla, okay. ground beef with seasoning, and she needs sour cream and lettuce yeah. and no cheese is her version. And she gets very disappointed <laughs> when I introduce any variations. That's not her taco meal. And she's <laughs> she's very picky. So that we have that taco meal at least once a week. Well, her palate just has not been developed yet, so we'll give her a break. I have on failed. That. I have failed as a as a parent. No, no. Yes. I feel, but I feel she, like she I said. feel like you're going to segue into something that is a little more uh, eccentric. Well, you know, I I do like the you know more traditional. So you know, chicken, a little little cilantro, not too much nice. cilantro, a squeeze of lime, corn tortilla, you know that, and and onions, lots of onions okay, like yeah, that. Authentic. That's okay. you know, there's more street tacos, so a little yeah. more authentic. Yes, yeah, so that that would be my preference. Sometimes I do serve those, but it's always to great complaint. Sure. Um, sure. So, so that, yeah, you know, we, we, we do both here. My 14 year old daughter is the same. It's the cross, meat and cheese. The cross every mother bears is yeah. the seven year old child. <laughs> yeah. In their yeah. Palate. You know, <laughs> yeah. We cater to the lowest denominator. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. It is what it is. Which is basically what evangelicalism <laughs> has been doing for all these years. <laughs> 
Let's just end it on that right there. Jason, you nailed it, bro. I was full circle. <laughs> it's been it's been really good having you. We're yeah, really, thank we're, you so much. Where can we find you? Yeah, so I have a website, kristendumez.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. Um, I put a lot of writings up there, um, but mostly I'm on Facebook, um, handle at KK Dumez. It's Kristen Kobus Dumez. I have an author page there, but pretty much every 10 minutes I'm on Twitter. Come so. on. That's where I really am. Uh, that's at KK Dumay. And I spend way too much time on Twitter. In fact, I'm going to have to go check it when we're done because I'm in a little conversation with Denny Burke right now. So, Oh, I'm going to go check that down. It's, it's a good one. I may inject myself into it. Oh, I think you need to. <laughs> Well, thank you for yeah. For thank you so us. much. This has really, really been good. Um, I uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah. Oh, it was it was it was a blast. Thank you. Hey guys, we're so glad that you are joining us for season two of Rethinking God with Tacos. Uh, you can find me, Derek Turner, at rivercharlotte.com. That's my church, and I'm on all the social medias yes. as Pastor Derek T. D E R E K. Pastor Derek T. Yeah, and uh, he's a Twitter savant. You gotta follow him on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Jason Clark is, uh, and you can find all of these podcasts, including season one, on all of the platforms. You can also go to afamilystory.org, and everything's there. If you sign up for our mailing list, we send out a weekly email that has uh, articles, podcast information, and uh, we also let you know about new books coming out or events that we're. Uh, connected to so yeah uh, like share retweet and uh and man if you could write a review it, it actually does something for the rankings it, it, it makes does it more available yeah. so but a five-star review of course if, yes you know if you can't write a five-star review or something <laughs> like just don't even write don't, a review. don't worry don't worry about it yeah yeah it's kind of like if you can't say something nice don't say anything, don't say at, anything all. at all I, I like that and then apply that to this <laughs> podcast definitely that's my motto that's i like what i do i love it so love you guys appreciate you coming on the ride with us god bless <laughs>